You're at the Coaching Inn, 3D Coaching's virtual pub where we enjoy conversations with people who are engaged in the world of coaching. Hello and welcome to this week's edition of the Coaching Inn. I'm Claire Pedrick and today I'm in conversation with Ed Haddon. So Ed, I'm sure well, you're going to tell us all about yourself, Ed, but Ed is a friend of Julian Mack. <laughs> uh, <laughs> who's a coach that we've had on the podcast before. And uh, last time I saw Julian, he went, read this book. (laughs) Uh, And he gave me a copy of Ed's book, The Modern Maverick. So I contacted Ed and said, let's talk. So Ed, welcome to the Coaching Inn. Claire, thank you very much. It's it's lovely to be here. And actually, it's it's lovely to be described as a friend of Julian Mack, not (laughs) not a title um, I've been given before. But it's a I think I think it's gonna be quite a theme of what we talk about, which is around the importance of of those looking after those people close to you and and friendship and and Julian's just had a, a really tough spell um with discitis in the hospital and it's really reminded me the importance actually of, of friendship and looking out for your friends and so I I'm very happy to be linked to him uh, at the top of the call so thank you well what a pleasure so tell us and a shout out to Julian who is undoubtedly listening to this podcast <laughs> so Tell me a bit about your journey, Ed, as a coach and as a writer and a human. Yeah, and a human, exactly. I sort of love that question. And I, you know, when you ask clients and that sort of first session, you know, tell me your story, I'm always intrigued about where they start. <laughs> they, never, they never start early enough. You know, I'm like, come on, back, let's go back, 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 back. Um, so I think a little, a little bit, I will start quite early. Both my parents were teachers. Um, they also split up when I was eight and that trying to understand that as an eight-year-old and trying to fix that as little children want to do I think set me down this path of being an observer and being interested in people um wanting to make things better uh it was you know not a fun place to be um our household sort of in those few years leading up to the divorce my dad was an alcoholic so I think that set me on this path I read psychology at university my sister's a clinical psychologist My brother was going to be, I think he was going to read also psychology. My mum was a bereavement counsellor. So there was a lot of language in the the household. The the shelves were filled with sort of Eric Fromm and Jung and and Freud. So there was definitely that language growing up. But then I went into um, business for a while and I, 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 I spent time, I think, in that period. It was a helpful, it was helpful actually to see organizations at work to see people at work um I did a lot of work in retail and hospitality which is obviously where you're trying to understand customers and I was very drawn to that um but ultimately I wasn't and I was quite I was I hope today we're going to talk a bit about this word success which is very central to the modern maverick to the book this idea of defining your own version of success and I was there I guess on paper quite inverted commas successful but I was really unhappy you know I wasn't I wasn't in a meaningful relationship I was I, I did keep up on my friendship, my friends a lot, and we'll talk about that, I think, as we go through the the call. But I just wasn't happy. And and in in, in retrospect, I realized I wasn't sort of living my purpose. I wasn't I hadn't really understood what I was on this planet to do. Um I tried being an entrepreneur, which is what I really it was my dream, I guess. That didn't quite work. And so in two thousand and eight, I was really at a low point, actually. Um I've been fired from a company I'd spent six or seven years trying to build. My father had just died, which was complicated. Um, and I actually went to my sister and said, hey, look, I'm thinking about doing a PhD, getting back in, you know, into psychology and getting, you know, going into the NHS. And she'd been in the NHS for 12 years at that point, just looked at me and went, you'd be, you'd be hopeless. You'd be absolutely, she was totally right. And she said, look, you've got this background in business. You, you've got this kind of I guess this sort of drive and this forward motion and this desire to make things better. Why don't you go and see a coach? And I was pretty skeptical at that point. You know, this is 15 years ago. Anyway, long story short, I had six sessions on the telephone with an amazing um, coach who basically helped me realize that I was in the kind of right room, but not on the right chair. So, or as, or as I think about it now, look, I was in the right stadium. So, you know, small business, Helping entrepreneurs was absolutely the right kind of stadium for me, but I, I shouldn't be trying to be centre forward. I should be coach, you know, should be Jurgen Klopp yeah. or whoever, whoever your whoever your coach is. And that was massively helpful. So I trained in eight, nine, qualified in ten, and then set up a practice uh, and focused 
from quite early on on founders, entrepreneurs, people with their own businesses, or people wanting to become more entrepreneurial. So people caught in the kind of corporate machine, if you like, um, trying to either escape it or change their relationship with it. So become more entrepreneurial, job crafting, as Amy Wazaski talks about, which I love this idea of job crafting. Maybe we can talk a bit about about that. And um, But the work I really loved and the reason I really became a coach was that feeling I had when I was really lost and really low. Um, and I had had some therapy and that had helped, but I, I wanted something that I could talk specifically about. Look, what's my what's my purpose? What's my work? And, and work in a broad sense, not just your paying job, but really what's what's my work? What's my what's the work of my life? What's the and I and I found that in coaching, and that's the work I now really love is is helping people who are a bit of a crossroads, who are not quite maybe lost a bit of confidence, not quite clear on the way forwards. Um and that's who I wrote the book two and four. Um obviously one-to-one coaching is amazing, but it's 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 not accessible for everyone. It can be quite expensive. Um my, my, our time is quite limited, even though there are seven of us in the business, you know, we're, we're, so the book was really to give people a taster, if you like. Um actually that's not fair. The book was the book was to give people it's very interactive, there's lots of exercises. The book was to try and create a coaching conversation on a page, which is very difficult, as you as you as you know. Um, but that was the idea. Uh and it was written to try and give people a sort of a stepping stone into a conversation with themselves, I guess. Yeah, and I think one of the things I like about encouraging people to do their own coaching <laughs> is that is that we can. And then we can't. Exactly. <laughs> but when we can't, we're really clear about where we are. And then if we need a coach for a bit, we can pick up from where we've got to. Because otherwise you're working with people doing stuff that they could do on their own. I love the question that I heard someone ask the other day, which is what can we do together that mm. you can't do on your own? Mm. Um, and yeah, so... Tell me what you mean by the modern maverick. Yeah, what do I mean by the modern maverick? Well, um, look, I think taking taking a step back briefly, what, the, 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 what really what really sat in my mind, and I couldn't get couldn't get out of my mind, was something I read in about 2012, which was by Bronnie Ware, who's a terminal care nurse, spent 15 years working literally with people dying, and she wrote this book called The Five Regrets of the Dying. Ah. Um, if you probably came across it, and I have it sort of here on my on my desk, you know, and, and it's and I'll give you a couple of them, you know. But the first one is, I wish I'd had the courage to live a life true to myself, not the life others expected on me. Um, <laughs> I wish I hadn't worked so hard, and then the last one, or I wish I'd stayed in touch with my friends. I wish I'd had the courage to express my feelings, and then this last one, which really I couldn't get out of my mind, was I wish that I'd let myself be happier. And that that was a gateway for me. So the penny just dropped and said, look, of, of course we get in our own way here. Um, and of course there are things we can do to get out of our own way. And I, I couldn't find the book. I couldn't find... I mean, I found that conversation in coaching, absolutely. And I found that conversation with my friends. I couldn't find the book that tried to take the whole, the, the whole enchilada on, as Mac talks about it. We talk about the whole enchilada. And of course, that's hard because it's a very broad topic. It's a very personal topic. But that, that's, what, that's what put the seed in my mind. Could I write a, a book that just, that just tried to give, some, give people a place to come and just ask those big, difficult questions? So we had the regrets. But we didn't have the kind of, how do you avoid, how do you avoid getting to regrets? I've, I felt, and I still feel it's very avoidable, right, to not yeah. be on your deathbed saying, I wish I'd let myself be happier. Huh? Um, so I started writing, um, and then the maverick idea really came through quite strongly when, obviously working with entrepreneurs, there is this strong streak of independence, and there's a strong streak of doing things differently. There's a strong streak of courage. Um, and and you do hear people talk about mavericks, um, not just in the Top Gun sense, um, but there was a negative, there was a slightly negative part to it, rule breaker, maybe sort of outside of society. I mean, the original Mavericks were the the cowboys that actually 
um, Russell, the Maverick, it comes from a term of unbranded cattle. So the original Mavericks were cattle that were unbranded. Then the Cowboys who went to steal them became the Mavericks and it sort of grew from there. So epistemology is in sort of naughtiness and law-breaking. Yeah. So I I wanted to sort of take that on a bit. And the idea of the modern, the sort of modern modifier, if you like, is, and I I think sometimes in in self-help, I think it can be quite inward obviously quite inward focused but it can stop there and I wanted to take an idea that was actually look this idea of better self for better society so let's not just work on ourselves because we think it will make us happier or live longer let's work on ourselves because we can then go back out into the world and we can be this sort of ripple effect that starts at home and ripples out into hopefully our community so the modern maverick really is an idea of someone who's independent, courageous, lives their own life, thinks about what matters to them, but all with a wrapper in service to others. Um, and the, the, the sort of the idea of kind of the, some of the maverick principles that are in the book is, look, is there a, I think people are looking there for a, a framework and a guide. You know, the, the secularization of society has left this enormous gap you know, I think a lot of us would subscribe to Christian values, but we've sort of lost sight of even what that is or how to practice that without this framework of the church around it. And while I'm not trying to compare compare what I've written to, the, to you know, some of the amazing religious texts, I, I, I am trying to give people some ideas that they, some of which will resonate, some of which won't, but that are kind of a call to action, both in terms of their extreme local home and community but also, what what am I uniquely here to do? Because the world's in a difficult spot. We're in difficult spots individually. Our happiness scores are dropping. Something's not quite working. So the, the modern maverick is there as a set of ideas that I think will, I hope people realise their, their best life, a life well lived. And in recognition, that is not just a life inwardly sort of promoting and serving. It's a, it's a life of actually in relation and service to to others in the community yeah and I think that's what's unique about it Ed in that in that it is about it it it's always difficult to know how honest to be on the podcast isn't it Please think, be, well let's, let's go for it come on Claire let's let's I'm not let's worried about it. being honest to you I'm being worried <laughs> about being honest to our lovely audience <laughs> But I think sometimes there can be parts of coaching that become self-actualizing nonsense. Yeah. Which is which is all about me. Yeah. And and it can just get, you know, so selfish. I had a conversation with somebody the other day about an aspect of our business. And um I said, I'm not sure I agree. It was a consulting conversation, not a coaching conversation. Mm. I said, I'm not sure I agree with you on that because actually one of the things that really matters to me is fairness. And she said, what do you mean by fairness? And I said, something that's fair to you, fair to some, to me and fair to someone else, and that will impact pricing. Well, we didn't agree. <laughs> we didn't agree. That's okay. We didn't agree. But I think... But I think there's a lot of stuff that I find in the coaching space, which which is about how can I earn more and more and more and more money and have a more and more and more and more perfect life. But that's not what you said when you read out those five regrets of the dying. None of those were about more and more money and none of them were about a more perfect life. They were much more nuanced than that, weren't they? And they were they were actually almost all in in relation to others. They weren't all just in relation to self, right? I wish it, I'd stayed in touch with my friends. Yes. Um, and I th- I think that to borrow back into business for a moment, um, we're we're I think we're a B Corps, and I I don't know how many of your listeners. I mean, I, it's interesting. I always ask the question, who's heard of the B Corps movement? And increasingly, hands are going up, which is great. But look, it's for those who haven't heard of it. it stands for short for Benefit Corporation. It's a move. In the States, in well, actually in the Western world in the late 70s, certainly Reagan and Thatcher led a movement to change the way businesses are literally governed from thinking about, you have to think about your community, your suppliers, your, to just shareholders, right? Shareholder primacy was born 
in the late 70s, early 80s to, to try and kickstart growth, M- maybe for all good reasons. But it has clearly had some very deleterious effects as we're now wrestling with, you know, this sort of this call for capitalism 2.0 and this great sense of unfair feeling of unfairness, as you as you as you say. And so this group that started, I think, now 15 years ago, went state by state in America lobbying to change the kind of basic articles of association of business to make it legal to think about people other than just your shareholders. It was, you know, it was illegal as a director of business. You know, your fiduciary duty was to maximize returns for shareholders. And it's an incredibly onerous and complicated certification process that took us the best part of a year. But it forces you to think about all the different constituent parts of what business as a force for good would look like. And I, I, I personally feel it's incredibly problem. And actually, as a sort of side note, it's quite a, it's quite a controversial thing for a coaching business to do because it implies you have a house view. You know, yeah. you know that we, we can maybe come back to that. Should we be empty vessels? Should we just be creating a container, or are we allowed to sort of slightly put a shape on that container, or have a have a frame that we look through to say, look, we're here to do try and do our little bit of of good. And so the the, the Going through a certification process made me really think about why isn't there a kind of L core, like a a life a life core? You know, what, can't we do this for our, ourselves, not just as a business? You know, we are locus of control ourselves and and impact. And and this idea that it wasn't just self serving; it was in service of others. I really tried to bring across into the book, even going as far as there's almost a kind of life certification there. This LQ uh, sort of tool I, I put really that's central to the book is let's just take a look at all the different areas and all the pillars of your life including not just your own health but you know friends and family are in there and children are in there and um communities in there giving is in there as a really important part and let's kind of give you give yourself a score and then we can we can work from something um so i i i, I completely agree that yeah, I think I think coaching needs to start from a position of we are all in relation to others and ourselves, and actually all the research is there, Claire, that, that supports this. You know, the, the 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 grant study, you know, out of out of the states, which is the longest running um, psychology study in the world. Nineteen thirty eight, they took two hundred Harvard undergraduates, then they added, I think, another two hundred local um teenagers and young adults from from boston and they every year they've sat down and interviewed them then they've interviewed their partners that have got married then they've interviewed their children now they're on to their grandchildren i think there are five of the original study left and robert waldinger who's the current sort of keeper of the, the guardian of the study has just uh, written a paper saying look you know we've we've, we've got all this data and it, it, it points to one thing very clearly which is that you can predict if you take someone at 50 the way you predict how long they're going to live, how how flourishing they are, how happy they are, is is the is the strength and the quality of their relationships. It is as simple as that. Yeah. Um. And so you're right to to sort of to coach with a view of how do I become happier is really looking at the wrong target. To coach with a view of how do I be a better parent, a, a, a better friend, um, how do I be a better keeper of my own physical and mental health if you look at it that way um these are the ways that then happiness will fleetingly come and go as a byproduct of that yeah and William Damon have you read The Path to Purpose yes yeah because he says that that um we find purpose when we connect to something outside of ourselves and we can't find it inside and he says that's where religion and human develop and the human development science meet, doesn't he? So endlessly looking inside isn't the place, is it? No, and it does come back to this quite interesting point you you raised about you can only go so far with yourself or or, or coaching yourself. And I wonder it is a challenge with a with a book, a coaching book that you don't have that conversation and and you don't have that. You know what I think what we do is as coaches is is we do we do sit with people and help them ask those difficult questions and sit with those difficult questions and we keep going <laughs> whereas I think when left to ourselves we I think everyone has really good intentions Claire I think the number of clients I get who say look I've really 
I've been thinking about this for quite a long time. I've been, I've sat down, I've, you know, but, but you just reach a point where I think the answer is not in conversation with yourself. And, yeah. and sometimes, oh, the answer, sometimes the answer is difficult and, and we shy away from that actually. And sometimes we turn away from it and it's too complicated and, you know, we, we feel too tired. We feel too, too entangled. We feel too trapped. We can't see a way through. And, and that is the magic that that transformational piece of the coaching conversation about bringing clarity, you know, creating insight from that clarity and then creating action. And then this final piece, this wonderful, powerful piece of accountability that once you've agreed in action or the clients put forward and agreed, you know, then, then there's this piece of like, I, like having a piano teacher, you know, you practice in between lessons, right? Otherwise yeah. you stop having a piano teacher. Um but I do, I, or you I, get fired. I, yeah. That's what happened to me. <laughs> yeah, or you, or you get fired. I agree. Yeah. Yeah. How, in, yeah. I just love this connecting piece, Ed. So, how do you do it? What are the maverick principles? I'm hearing a lot about connecting in lots of different layers. Well, I mean, actually, to do a bit of a, not a u-turn but you know this idea that again this is this is from my mum a long time ago but I remember pulling down the art of loving the Eric Fromm book off the off the shelf and probably about 16 and reading it and and this line just to stay with me which is you know you, you cannot love until you love yourself and so this sort of slightly contrasts with what we're talking about but I think the phrase is very important which is that What's the purpose of loving oneself is not solipsistic and narcissistic. It's so that you can then love the world and love everyone yeah. around you. So I do, I do think um, there is a sense of getting one's house in in order um, first or or in parallel. Um, I, I, and actually, I think the problem with feeling off track, or I call it sort of you know, this idea of a path, the feeling was. The problem with being off, off, feeling off your path is it becomes very absorbing. <laughs> this idea of I'm not, I'm not on the right path here. I'm not happy. That, that becomes, as we know, very, yeah, absorbing, doesn't it? You, you know, I think people spend a lot of time and become increasingly withdrawn, uh, and that can obviously lead to depression and 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 beyond. So, the, I talk about this kind of voice, this inner maverick, this voice that I think we all have at certain points in our life, saying, "Come on." This is not, we're not on, on the path here. This is some, something's not wrong. And I think you ignore that voice at your peril, actually. Um, and I think I, I've, I've, I've done it. I, I went through you know, years, really, of ignoring it, saying, yeah, I, I can be an entrepreneur, I will be an entrepreneur. You're really fighting it. And I think life is challenging. I, I, I don't like this expression, life is tough, actually, because... I think that life is challenging implies a sense of, you know, an agency, which I really like. Life is tough, I think, can sometimes set, set, tend you down a slight path of passivity. And I think one of the big problems I encounter with with clients is this slight, this sort of idea of passenger rather than pilot. Yeah. You know, I got offered this job, so I took it. I got offered, you know, this house came up, so I went to live there. This happened, this happened, this happened. And, it's, and suddenly you're in your 40s going, wow, how did I... How did I get here? So I, I think the book, that the principles, the book, are really about saying, come on, let's climb out of the passenger seat and let's get you in the front of the plane, right? Let, let's get you flying the plane. I talk about three kind of ways of doing that. I mean, there are there are 50 tools in the book, believe it or not. But if I had to pick out three, um, the first one really is, uh, this word success is complicated, a bit mm -hmm. like the word maverick is complicated deliberately. Success is a complicated word. I think it's become very tied up with money and power and likes and followers and profile and sort of business, I guess. But I think somehow deep down it's a longing in all of us to have some version of success, to feel like we are something, to feel like we're in the world and we're we're doing something. And so I just ask people to start by thinking where do you think you have borrowed your own definition of success from where 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 have you you know think about parents think about school think about school where it's exams straight away right yeah we've been graded i mean crazy 
in a way. You're being compared immediately to your peer group. And your success is on how well you can remember. Exactly. It's such a narrow skill set, right? It's not on how nice you are or how kind you are or, you know. Um, in fact, funny enough, you know what, as a, as a side note, this morning I was talking to my son who's 13 and he had quite a... So he was sort of 10, 11 during COVID and they had quite a... Boys, I think, in that period, it's normally where they're trying to find their feet socially and understand how to interact. And they didn't have that. And so he had quite a tough year when he came back to school. And he's had a great year this last year. And I said, I said, Billy, what, how did you do that? What, what, did, what changed? And he said, oh, dad, I just started being a nice person. And I was like, wow, okay. And we talked to him about what that meant and how he came to that conclusion. But that, that's success, isn't it? That, that idea of actually, how do I build positive relationships in my community? How do I become a kind person and and he's now much happier I'm, I'm sure his exams have been okay I don't but I mean he's a much happier person as a, as a result of that so I, I think we we get daily kind of drowned with other people's idea of success advertising the media the news I mean goodness me that's that's a literally a failure or, or disaster not you know I, I subscribe to this lovely magazine called Positive News which once a month just brings a sort of injection of positivity and good stuff into my life because we just swim in this pond of kind of negativity and people people killing and maiming and oh anyway uh, that's another topic of conversation not for today so look thinking about how do we where do our definitions of success come from passive again right we just they just seep it and actually asking people to sit down and i did i ran a workshop on sunday about this right 10 minutes piece of paper what is your definition of success what is really important to you what really matters to you i sometimes ask people to write their eulogy what would your eulogy be now in three sentences what would it be what would you like it to be what's the gap i mean that's quite a good setup for coaching isn't it what you know where are you now three sentences where would you like to be when you and no one ever writes coming back to regrets no one ever writes on their final eulogy you know, I wish I'd had more Twitter followers, right? I mean, exactly. <laughs> so that's the it's, first, yeah, oh, sorry. Yeah. It's it's always going to be about people. Well, it is, except occasionally you do go to a funeral service where someone reads out someone's CV, and that's always yeah. very telling, I think, and very interesting. But yes, it's it's beloved. Well, go, go walk around a graveyard. Yeah. Not bank accounts, it's beloved grandfather, beloved husband, beloved son. So that... That def, that first for me, that's the first stepping off point, Claire. Is what is your definition definition of success? And I do that exercise with clients, and yeah, sometimes the first the first one is quite narrow, and it might be about work or their business, particularly if they're entrepreneurs. But pretty quickly, you know, I say, well, what about home? What's what's success at home look like? Well, what do you mean success at home? What about your physical health? What does success look like in terms of your physical health? What about your charity and giving? What does success look like in giving? That's an interesting idea that blows people's minds sometimes. So that's, that's the kind of map, right? Definition of success, create your own map, if you like. Then I talk about this idea of, there's a, of what are you, what what are you, Lots of people talk about strengths, and again, it's interesting. I was in, I was doing this workshop, and we talked about success, and then we talked about strengths, and then we kind of talk about goals. And someone put their hand up, and said, "These are all very businessy words." You know, I don't like these words, and I was like, "You're tight. You're quite right." Um, but they are they're effective. They're, they're they're words that make you think, and I I like to sit at this intersection of business and psychology and coaching. That's I feel very comfortable there, and I think there are there are there are things to bring across from business into coaching and psychology and there are definitely ideas to take back the other way um so this idea yeah i get people to think about what their strengths are and people go oh well i'm you know i'm good at spreadsheets or (laughs) i mean i go hang on let's go let's 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 dig a uh, let's go let's go a bit deeper than that you know i'm I'm good at building relationships Well, well what is it that you're how do you do that you know and so I think, you know, I, I, I thought a lot, you know, about, you know, I think as a coach, 
I'm good at, you know, creating a rapport and therefore creating trust and therefore creating a safe space that allows people to then explore, allows me to ask very challenging questions and for people to have the courage and the trust to reply and then for me to really listen. So there you get you know idea of well, what's the next level down on strengths. Okay, I really can create trust quickly and I really can listen so that I can ask good questions. That that then you then you that's what I mean by really an idea of what's your yeah. strength. And then we say, well, what you know, let's what about a superpower? You know, can you see one in there that's really your superpower? And people get it's hard. And this is and I look, I try to do it in 10 minutes and it's on blows top of the head off. And I say, look, if we were working together, we'd do two, three hours on this. But that you know, this give you an idea. So so I think once you understand or have a feel for what you might be uniquely on this planet to do, that that's a that's a real clue as to how you might and where you might apply that. And so we take that strength and we say, well, where might you use it? Like coming back to that stadium idea, what's your stadium? And what's your position in that stadium? Better not be in the stands watching. You know, I'm happy you could be anywhere. You could be, you could be the person that mows the pitch. You could be the physio back of house. You could be the owner in the owner's box. You could be the person that built the stadium. Doesn't matter, as long as it's not. As long as you're not in the audience. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> get get on the pitch or get in get in the stadium. So that's the kind of second piece, and that that fits as part of this wonderful Japanese concept of ikigai, which is, yeah. you know, what are my strengths and what am I passionate about? What does the world need and what can I get sort of rewarded for? So we do the strengths bit first. Yeah. And I love that, you know, because I've done a lot of vocational coaching over the years and it's that mm. Aristotle quote that says where your talents and the needs of the world lie um, can collide. Yeah. There lies your vocation. That's, exactly. It's exactly. beautiful, isn't it? So yeah. beautiful. And I think so many of us, sit and I did you know for my first 10 years of my career I sat in that intersection between a strength you know as a consultant a strength and what I get paid for I was a pretty good consultant right but I wasn't passionate about it and I I think the world does need it in some way but I wasn't convinced by that so I was never gonna I was never really gonna rise up that profession um even though it was I was, you know, even though they were saying, look, this is great, you know, stay, come on. But I knew the what the passion was missing. And I and I and I and I think that's where you see people flame out a bit in the middle of their careers, is where actually they've been doing a job that they're good at and well rewarded for, but they're not passionate about it. And they're not they're not convinced the world needs it. You know, there is something about people's capacity to pay for to, to get the money that allows them to express their vocation but I um there's a book by John Adair called Discovering Your Vocation and he talks about vocation and avocation um, so sometimes avocation is the work that we do to earn the money yeah to be able to do the other bit and I yeah. I met this guy at a conference where I was speaking about it and he was a bit of a super fan actually <laughs> we met over several years and he um I think I can't remember which way around it was, but he made the plastic shower cubicles where you put the shampoo. Yep. And his job was made redundant and he really wanted to be in radio, but he wasn't good enough to be able to get paid to do commercially paid to do radio. So he did hospital radio and we met at that point where he was really trying to, his job had been made redundant. He wanted to find something that was vocational that would pay money because we have to live. Yeah. And, and he couldn't, and we talked about the difference between our vocation and vocation. And sometimes our vocation is, um, is the thing we earn the money for. And he'd hated the job in the factory doing the plastic thing. Mm. The next year he came up to me and he goes, I've got a new job. It's not my passion, but I love it because I started it knowing that it means that it pays for the other bit. So his attitude to work mm. in the new place had changed. And, and he'd got a job making blinds for windows, yeah. Yeah. Which, which, which didn't in it of itself inspire any passion in him. But every morning he told me he would go to work super happy yeah. Yeah. because he knew that he was there to earn the money to do the other thing. Yeah. Yeah. So... So the things that we're talking about here are accessible to all, aren't they? Well, I, I, in I, different and in different ways. Yeah, and and I think look, I, I'll, I'll throw the biggest criticism of the book on the on the table here, which I get asked, well, is this all some nice 
middle-class luxury, right? To be able to think about our passion and think about what we really want to do when actually, how do I pay the electricity bill? Yeah, exactly. And it's a really valid um, critique. And particularly, you know, I, I, I come from a privileged background and I get it leveled at me a lot. And it's a really fair question. And I, and I sort of talk about it in two different ways or I try and answer that question in two different ways. One is, yes, I totally agree. I like the story you just told that sometimes we have to do something we're not passionate about. But I think of it like a mixing deck, like a DJ's mixing deck, and you can have different channels. Yeah, right? You can he, have a vocation, a vocation. Yeah. Yeah. And he had the vocational channel. Yeah. yeah. And the issue was that he had lived his life being angry that he wasn't earning the money yeah. from the money from the from the vocational one and he was having to do something else. So it was a yeah. it was a mind shift that enabled him to really recognise that he did have everything he wanted. It just wasn't, as you say, on the mixing deck, Yeah, it, it wasn't in the traditional expectation or fantasy or whatever no. or what it might look no, like. No, and, and, it, and, it, and it wasn't, and it wasn't his, it wasn't, he wasn't passenger, he was passenger, not pilot. The yeah. moment he said, I've made this yeah. plan, I'm going to do this so I can do this, you become yeah. a pilot. And I think yeah, absolutely. In, in coaching, I almost think we've had some of our benefit the, 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 the time that they, they give the first phone call right you've taken action you you're you're creating a plan and sometimes somehow the misery becomes a lot less when you have a plan or when you have the context of why you're doing it and the mixing deck you can move things up and down right you can things change and I that is a maverick principle saying look don't throw the don't throw the keys away don't throw the toys out the pram transition think about how you how you move through so yeah completely I completely agree with that. So, so we've done that. We've done just to finish off the kind of third. The, 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 there's always three steps, aren't there? But the first step <laughs> is think about your map. <laughs> that's that's the definition of success. The second is what's your sort of superpower that I think of as the car. You know how you're going to drive or walk through the map. The third piece, which I do think is important, Claire, and we've touched on this already, is change is hard. Change yeah. is is challenging, um, and it's particularly challenging when we're kind of depleted, this sort of resource depletion idea that I like. Um, I can't remember who sort of talked to it, but said, look, you know, if you're if you're trying to make, even try, even thinking about this stuff is difficult if you're exhausted or if you're drinking too much, frankly, or if you're sat alone at home a lot. or So I, so that's really where the LQ, this, this sort of life quotient idea comes in. Let's, let's take a sort of baseline of where you are. How charged are your batteries? You know, you're your battery's full or half full or empty and let's work on that in parallel with this because when you do get into the passenger seat when you do want to find a new job so you can support your vocation it it needs energy and it needs you in your sort of best frame so that's this idea of come on let's charge the batteries You, you know you know you've got your map you've got your car let's fill up the batteries or fill up the petrol tank and then and then off you go and that that's that's the sort of architecture if you like of the book so it's both there is a kind of almost spiritual element to the beginning bit which is who are you what are your dreams what do you want to do but there's also then a deeply practical second half of like come on how are we going to do it how are we going to get you started how are we going to build that momentum and how are we going to keep that momentum going even when as inevitably happens you hit a speed bump right yes things don't work out your plans do fall apart but let's let's go into this knowing that's going to happen and and create a way of keeping going and where do you intentionally recharge your batteries? My my brother has just bought an electric car. Yeah. And on Friday, he's taking my dad to visit my daughter. And my yeah. brother said to me the other day, he said, bit stressful. Yeah. It's going right. It's going right to the limit. Yeah. <laughs> and he's looked up where to recharge. Yeah. He thinks he can put a little bit. Yeah. When they get there, because he thinks he's found somewhere that he could put a little bit. And then, of course, he knows that when he comes home, he's going to have to not use it and put yeah. it on a proper overnight charge so that yeah. he can use it again the next day. But yeah. that's such a good metaphor, isn't it? Isn't it? Isn't um, it? Uh, so, because, yeah. Because we talk about recharging, but when you think about the fact that the car won't move, you recognise that different kinds of recharging really matter. Well, also what's fascinating about that, just to really go with the metaphor a bit, is unlike a petrol car where the AA can come along yeah. and put some petrol in, yeah. Yeah, I've got an electric car, and when you run out of... You have to get towed, right? There's no, yeah. you can't, yeah. there's no sort of yeah. mobile charging station. So, And also you've raised a really lovely point, which is kind of top up 
like how do I, and then and then actually make you know hang on the yeah. batteries are completely flat yeah uh, or worse the batteries are basically broken and i've got to replace yeah. the batteries and and i do we do see clients don't we in sort of in that breakdown territory in the burnout territory and it's it's a long way back from there but i think looking at answer your answer your question i'm going to pick i'm going to separate out those two categories so how do i do the little top-ups and then how do i do the major yeah. battery replacement right yeah um for me the little top-ups come from um sitting with friends so you know i went for a lovely walk with with julian yesterday and that that is deeply recharging for me and i you know i i do i think a lot about this mother Teresa quote if you want to change the world go home and love your family and i think we spend a lot of time doing exactly the opposite we think if we want to change the world go to work build a huge company be part of a corporate global conglomerate and i just i think it's the opposite so that is one of my little top ups. The second of my little top ups is um, is exercise. I run quite a lot, and I walk, and I have a dog, which is. I mean, every time I take the dog for a walk, that's a top up, isn't it? You know, you're walking, and I and I and then we live in a lovely. We live in Somerset, so I think nature is that for me an instant top up. I mean, my sister, her her soul lights up when she goes down the A45 or coming into Maribyrn. So everyone has a different way of yeah. topping up. She gets an urban top up, so she lives in Hackney. Great. But I think knowing where your soul soars a bit, mm. mine soars in greenery and nature. So that's the kind of the daily top ups. And I have just done a major kind of battery replacement. Um, um, I try and do it every five years, try and take some form of sabbatical and really do something completely different, a bit of a reset, if you like. And I have just, I took a month to run the Southwest Coast Path, which is... 630 miles or a thousand kilometers for those of you metric it's you climb Everest four times during it um it is the UK's sort of longest toughest trail but that's not the point the point for me is it's all by the sea yeah so you spent I spent 31 days with the sea on my right that was how I knew if the sea was on my right I was going the right direction um some of it was alone a lot of it was with friends and family who came and did days or two or three days with me and when I said to people, I'm going to take a break and I'm going to go and run 22, 23 miles a day and climb Ben Nevis every day, they looked at me and went, that, that is not, Ed, that is not a break. <laughs> that is not, that's not my definition of a sabbatical. But for me, it really was because there was a huge simplicity in every morning I had to get up, feed myself, get myself ready, stretch, run for between four and eight hours a day recover eat sleep and repeat and there was a great simplicity in that the complexity the entanglement that we all have in life I was completely unentangled and it was a wonderful reset and a wonderful reboot that to be honest I'm still I finished two weeks ago so I'm still sort of processing oh, wow. it but what, what I do what I do come back and as I layer back on my life as I sort of put back on the coats and then put on the overcoats and then and I, uh, what do I notice? You know, I, I notice the things that really matter to me. I notice the things that make my heart sing. I notice the things that charge my batteries, which are around really meaningful coaching conversations, spending time with friends and family. And I notice the things that don't give me energy. And I think that to do that once every few years or when you can is it is a it's look it, it it may be seen as a luxury i understand that you know people most of the people i met who, who take two or three years to do this path because they do it on weekends they said, how can you get a month off work and i said well i work for myself and i've been planning it for two years and it is it is possible you know it, that, it is possible yeah. i did the camino in september ah there you go so <laughs> i i i really yeah and the coastal path is on my long walk yeah well, it's it, wish list. Uh, yeah, it's magical. Lots of people I met had done the Camino. You know, there's obviously there's a link. There's a sort of yeah, there's a link there. And but, um, yeah. but I absolutely agree with you that there's something about, or because people say to me, but it must have been exhausting. But mm. I, and I'm going, but all you all we had to do was get up, eat, walk, get in the shower with our clothes on. Yeah. <laughs> Because we had very little soap and very few clothes. Yeah. yeah. Eat. Yeah. Go to bed and do it again. Yeah. A, a friend of mine who I saw actually the other day, when we were when we were young mums, uh, 
she invited me to go on holiday with them to Dover. And we sat, which for those of you around the world is on the coast. Mm. And uh, and we sat on the beach and she said, the reason you need to go to beaches when you're stressed is that all you can see if you look at the if you look out over the sea mm. is the sky and the sea. So you can mm. only see two things. Mm. Whereas normally, I mean, I'm looking at you now mm. and you've got a really interesting books and some interesting pictures. And mm. I wonder what that book is on the desk. And I think it might be the same book that I've got on my desk. <laughs> and have you got an Apple Mac? Because look at the yeah. plug in the wall. You know, all of that stuff. <laughs> but, you know, what a gift is a sabbatical when you only have to get up and move and go to bed and eat. Yeah, and I, and I think there is a sense of pilgrimage too. You know, I'm sure the Camino obviously is literally a, 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 a pilgrimage. And what does pilgrimage really mean? And I, I think it's an interesting idea in a sort of modern, again, this idea of what have we lost with the secularization what have we like this sense and, and, and arriving somewhere on foot is an extraordinary experience and, and arriving into a I was very worried about 31 different places to stay and I sometimes find that quite hard sort of settling in and you know what's the you know I remember Craig and his his his, his Cornish American thyme, themed diner you know in his in his B&B and all these characters and but somehow arriving on foot I, I've never I haven't thought about this until now is I found it very gentle and easy to just cross thresholds. Yes, you know, I hadn't, because... I hadn't, uh, yeah, go on. Because, because you're not getting dropped in. Exactly. You're not getting out of a metal box where you spent three hours stressed on a motorway. You're arriving in a very calm, I mean, exhausted, calm... I remember arriving in Lyme Regis and there was an ambulance outside the place I was staying. And I was like, oh, hello. They, they, they see, they know, know I'm coming. And... There was a heck of a scene going on. Some someone had a heart attack in one of the rooms, and the the lovely person behind the bar said, "Look, I can't check you. I can give you your key. I can't check you in because there's a bit of a situation." And I was like, "Okay, fine." And then later, I met the the manager of the place, and she said, "Look, I'm really sorry. I couldn't check you in. I was giving someone mouth to mouth." And I was like, "Gosh, don't you know? Don't worry about my checking." And she said, "Yeah, it's the third time I've had to do it while I've worked here." And I and oh, yeah. I said. And so I immediately kicked into kind of, co- I said, are you okay? You know, how are you feeling? You know, do you want to go home? Do you need, you know, I, I was so kind of staggered that she was just sitting there having saved, literally just saved someone's life. And she's like, yes, that we got, I got her breathing again and I'm waiting to hear from the hospital because we think she might have been not breathing for quite a long time and worried about brain damage. And, and I just sat down, I sat down. I remember I sat, I was very, I was still in my running gear, right? I was still this sweaty ball of, I just sat down next to her and I and I sort of I just sat with her and I said, that's incredible. You know, she said, I always seem to be in the wrong place. I said, no, no, you've been in the right place with those three lives you've saved. You've been in exactly the right place at the right time. And you've had this training and you've done this incredible thing. And it was sort of moments like that that really, I think if I just arrived in a car and I, oh, I was only staying and I would have gone up to my room and I don't know, it, it was, there was a change in the flow and nature of time and therefore of your relationships to others in, in in that I didn't have anything or anywhere I needed. I mean, yes, I needed to get somewhere by the end of the day, but those little interactions. And I, again, I haven't really thought about this until we, we started talking about it. I hadn't really thought about this, this gift of having the time and space to really meet people. And I don't mean sit for hours and talk. I mean, just, be present and be aware of what's happening for that person. You know, are they walking? Are they what? I don't know. I, it was maybe I hadn't, again. Yeah, this is all just sort of pennies dropping. You could hear pennies dropping, but I think that was probably a big part of it: is not rushing to the next place, not feeling oh, I've got to get on my email, not worrying about my to do list, and just being very present. You need to come back, and we need to talk about sabbatical. Yes, because <laughs> I think because I think that dialogue would be really interesting for our listeners, but also I think it would be great meaning making. And I love yeah. the fact that Ed that we started this conversation by talking about your friend Julian Mack, mm. and we've ended this conversation by you talking about your friend for a few minutes, mm. who was the person who did the mouth to mouth in the hotel, mm. who you probably don't know her name. No. 
and you'll probably never meet her again and yet you were deeply a friend to her I will never forget her and I'll never forget I mean she's made me sign up for first aid training you know I never forget what what she did and and you know just to finish a bit on on Julian you know having he had a very different experience while I was running he was in hospital very ill um and we met yesterday and we talked about what we both took from these experiences and we were very much in contact a lot you know I had this lovely whatsapp group where he and a number of people were hugely supportive to me during this run and I hope vice versa for him and you know what we took we took the same we came to exactly the same conclusions which is we spend our life worrying about work then we get a little bit of time and energy to think about our family and maybe our friends and then maybe we think a little bit about our own physical and mental health and we both had to inverse that for different reasons me because I was running him because he was literally fighting for his life actually it turned out and we had to think about our bodies our minds then we had to think about our friends and family these lovely people who came to join me and then we had a little bit of time to think about work and we we both committed to each other to try and keep it's like reversing the telescope try and keep that set of priorities my own physical and mental well-being the health and well-being of my friends and family and then what work can i do not the other way around Wow. So how do people contact you, Ed? Yeah, well, look, uh, you buy the book. <laughs> the, mod- <laughs> the Modern Maverick is a start. Um, there's a website that goes along with that. Uh, the-, the coaching website is Haddon Coaching. Um, so you can find that online. And yeah, we, we you know, we- this is the work we love doing. So please do um, reach out. We're, we're quite active on LinkedIn. Um but yeah, I'd love to start a conversation with anyone. Um, and I also particularly, I think like you, Claire, you do a lot of work helping encourage new coaches. I'm always here. Uh, you know, the one thing I, if someone wants to get in touch and say, look, I'm thinking about becoming a coach or I'm starting my coaching practice, I don't I don't formally supervise, but I will always spend half an hour an hour with someone who's wants to have a conversation about how to build a practice. Um, I make that offer you know very openly and I love doing it brilliant well thank you Ed for coming to the coaching in and thank you everybody for listening and Ed we must we'll have you back um maybe at the beginning of next year to talk about sabbaticals and pilgrimages and those things because I think that will be such fun (laughs) I'd love to do that Claire thank you it's been a lovely conversation I've really enjoyed it well thank you so thank you Ed Haddon and thank you all for listening bye-bye If you've enjoyed what you've heard today, we'd love you to share the podcast with a friend or leave a comment on social media. And if you'd like to become a regular at The Coaching Inn, you can subscribe on Podbean and all major podcast channels. We look forward to welcoming you next time. You've been listening to The Coaching Inn, 3D Coaching's virtual pub. For more information, check out 3dcoaching.com.